and are uh, dismissed to Children's Church at this time. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to Exodus chapter 6. We're continuing through Exodus this morning. Exodus uh, chapter 6. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Although verse 1 we talked about last week because it goes uh, more with the end of chapter 5. But we're going to read chapter 6, 1 uh, through 13. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name is the name is the Lord. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them the charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just want to come and praise you and thank you uh, and come and hear your word this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be here, that he would be living and active in our midst, that he would use the word of God. Uh, to teach us uh, what we need to know, that we might see uh, you, our great and mighty God, for who you are, and that we might uh, be drawn to worship you in, in greater and greater ways, and that we might be ever grateful of the redemption that you've given us in the Son, Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. Weddings are often uh, a beautiful time. Uh, I'm sure you can think of your own wedding and think of how lovely it, it was. Uh, I can still remember what my wife looked like when I first saw her uh, coming down the aisle in that white wedding dress. Uh, and everybody tears up at weddings and everybody gets emotional and everybody says uh, it's wonderful, it's glorious, and um, it is. And it's rightly a time to celebrate. What does it look like when God marries his people? When God connects himself to his people in a covenant uh, relationship, And this is one of the themes that we see throughout Scripture, uh, but particularly it climaxes in the book of Revelation with the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are told that Jesus has taken the church as his bride. 
And he died for them to cleanse them. The picture of marriage throughout Scripture is also used to teach something about how God relates to us. And our main point this morning is simply that God takes a people to for Himself. That God unites Himself to a people so that they become His people and He becomes our God. There's those possessive pronouns there that highlight the connection of the relationship. And the question that we want to ask is why? Why would the God of the universe take unto Himself a people to call His own? Why would God enter into a relationship with His creation, with human beings? First off, God is infinite and we are finite. God doesn't need a relationship with us. He is infinite. He is self-sufficient. Who made God? No one. What needs does God have? None. Even more, in our sin, why would God in His holiness come down and want to unite Himself to a sinful people? To cleanse them to wash them, to make them holy, so that He could enter into them with a marriage-type relationship. Why would God do this? First, this morning, we want to look, go through this passage and look and see how God assures His people. God is going to give them assurance about what He is doing so that we will find that God is trustworthy in all that He says and in all that He does. The people here are still in captivity. You'll remember the first time that Moses went into Pharaoh, Pharaoh decided to make it worse for the Israelites. He said, make these bricks without any straws. So their burden gets even heavier. Now the people are even more oppressed. And they're just kind of like, Moses, bug off and get out of here. You're only making it worse. But God brings His Word and says, I am going to redeem you. God speaks again. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and He said, I am the Lord. I mean, that, that should be enough. You could almost just end right there and say, okay, we're wrapping it up. God, God has given His name. How do we know that God is going to do these things? He's God. How do we know that God saves people? He's God. And when He promises to do something, He keeps His promises. He has the power and the might and the ability so that nothing can thwart His hand. If the Israelites are saying, no, 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 this isn't going to happen, and now you hear the words, I am the Lord, that should be enough. And yet, even God in His grace gives us more. God's announcing His name. This is who I am. This is who I am. And God, when He makes promises, He didn't have to make a promise. He didn't have to enter into a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the forefathers. But when He makes a promise, He does not shirk in keeping that promise. He doesn't shrink back from from it. And He most certainly does not break it. 
So again, notice how God gives his name in verse 3. I, am the, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So we want to unpack this a little bit. Uh, the word God Almighty is in the Hebrew El Shaddai. Uh, it has this idea of, of, a, of kind of like a strong person. Uh, that's why we translate it God Almighty. It, it indicates the strength that God has. So you see it in the patriarchal narratives. Genesis 17:1. Abraham was 99 years old and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, uh, I am God Almighty or I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. Again, appearing to one of the descendants, Genesis 35:11. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, God is not saying in Exodus 6 that he never, up until this point, used the name Yahweh or Jehovah, the one that we translate with the capital L-O-R-D, that divine name, the I am who I am. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 15:7, God says to Moses, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans and gave you of this land to possess. Genesis 28:13. And behold, the Lord stood above it. This is one of the altars and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring. However, in this context, making his name known is not just telling you his name. It, it's not like he said, oh, by the way, you've known me as El Shaddai, and I also have a middle name. My middle name is Yahweh, and I want you to call me that from now on. Or I have a nickname, or I have a secondary name, and I never have spoken this up until this point. The idea of knowing someone's name in the ancient world entails more than just knowing what they're named. Hi, my name is Timothy. Now you all know my name. But if we were speaking, do you know my name? We might say, you know, do you know my character? Do you know who I am? And if I ask you that question, it wouldn't be enough to say, yes, yes, I know you're Timothy. No, do you know who I am? And the idea here is that up until this point, God has made promises. He has shown himself to be the God Almighty who says these things and and did miracles and showed his power. But now he's going to show his majesty, his might, his glory and his magnificence in a way that the people of God up until this point had not seen. It's what we call progressive revelation. And as, as the biblical history unfolds, God is regularly telling us more about himself. And the Exodus in the, is one of, if not the, high point of the Old Testament revelation. Uh, you could even look later at the prophets who are revealing many more things. Many, Much of what they said is still grounded In the God who revealed himself and the character traits he revealed in the book of Exodus and even in the book of Deuteronomy in these early years. The point being, when he says, but by my name, I did not make myself known, is not 
well, I've never said or used this name before. But think about how the patriarchs knew God. They heard ahead of time what God was going to do. In fact, God promised in Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years and I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. God had not made himself known to the patriarchs in the sense of fulfilling these promises, redeeming Israel out of the land, and bringing this judgment on the oppressor. So God had said to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. But he basically said, you're not going to see it. You're going to die in peace to go to rest with your fathers. But now... God is saying, I haven't made my name known previously. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to keep my promises. God is making himself known as the keeper of the promises made. He is making himself known as the redeemer, as the I am who I am, who has this mighty hand, who lifts up his people to save them, but also to crush The Egyptians who are the enemies of God and God's people. God is making his name, his character known in a new way. God also made a covenant with his people. Look at verse four. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. This was the covenant. It was made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And we talked about this, and I just read Genesis 15, and part of that covenant, God said, but you will, your children, your descendants will go down to Egypt for 400 years, and then I will bring them back out. The land of Canaan wasn't ready for judgment yet. It wasn't ready for the Israelites to come in and, and take over. And so God had made this covenant, He had promised this to Abraham and he's about to keep that covenant. But part of the point is it hadn't yet happened. Think about maybe, for example, the biblical example of Simeon as he uh, waited in the temple. He knew the promise of the Messiah. He knew the Old Testament. He knew that God had said all of these things would happen. And God had then even in a special way promised you won't die until you see the hope of Israel. He knew all of that. But then there was a day where Mary and Joseph brought the little baby Jesus into the temple to dedicate him and circumcise him on the eighth day as was the custom according to the law to fulfill the law of Moses. And in that moment, he saw the promised Messiah. He knew it was coming. He was promised it was coming. He had waited for many, many years. I wonder how many mornings he got up and said, oh, I need to get to the temple again. Will today be the day? And maybe some mornings he woke up in excitement. Oh, yeah, maybe it's today. Maybe other mornings he woke up like some of us do, like, ah, Got to go to work again? I've been doing this for years. When's this Messiah going to come? 
This is how Israel felt. We have the covenant, but where is God? Sometimes this is how we feel in our relationship with God. We have the promises, but where is God in this moment? God has said, I made this covenant. And then he says he hears, verse 5, Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. This is beautiful language here. I remembered my covenant. Now, this obviously doesn't mean that it like slipped God's mind. Like he's just getting really busy running the universe, you know, doing all his God things. And he's like, "Ooh, I promised I would deliver those Israelites. That's right. This is not like you and I, like where you promise your kids you're going to take them uh, to Knobles or an amusement park or something and the summer's almost all over and they look at you and they go, when are we going to go? And you're like, oh, I did, I did promise that, didn't I? All right, let me look at my schedule. This is, this is a way of, God, of describing that God is going to do what he said he would do. And it's a way of describing that the basis for why God acts is because God made a promise. Why is God moved with compassion? Yes, He's a loving God. But why specifically here is He moved by the groanings of the people of Israel? Because He made a covenant. Because He put His name to it. He put Himself on the line and He said, I will do this. And he sees what's going on and he says, now I will act. The the 400 years that I had promised that would happen, it's coming to an end. I see what's going on. I'm not oblivious to it. These are my kids and I love them. And I'm going to go down there and do what I said I would do. And so God remembers his covenant. He gave his word. He united himself to a people. He took a solemn oath, if you will. And now he's going to keep it. Interestingly, just as an aside, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, he takes these two and he puts Moses, or excuse me, he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. Uh, this is Genesis 15. He has Moses cut a bunch of animals Uh, put them on, excuse me, Abraham cut a bunch of animals, put them on either side. So imagine like the aisle here and, and dead animals cut in half on either side. And Abraham is on one end and God appears to manifest himself on the other end. He puts Abraham into a deep sleep and God walks down that aisle between those cut animals. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you and I. We maybe are going, ew, that sounds kind of gross. In the ancient world, that's how you made a covenant. Like, like when a king conquered another king, he would do that. He would set up those animals, cut them in half, and he would have the weak king that he just defeated walk to him. And it was a way of pledging loyalty that said, if I break my oath to you, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And so the little king would, pre- uh, uh, would promise and swear an oath. But when God makes this covenant, God doesn't have Abraham walk down the aisle, as it were. God walks down the aisle. It's a reversal of the way they would have done it in the ancient world. And it's a way of God saying, 
let what happened to these animals happen to me if I break my word. Which is a way of saying, I absolutely will not break my word. You can't cut God in half. You can't kill God. God is swearing an oath by his name and putting his character on the line for keeping these covenant promises. God saving his people does not depend upon you and me. It does not depend upon His people. It doesn't even depend upon the strength of our ability to cry out to God. Now, we should cry out to God. But sometimes we feel like, maybe God isn't hearing me and I just need to cry louder. That's the problem. It is not our strength and our cry that makes us savable. It is God in His power. It is God in His might. It is God in the keeping of His covenant promises that He has said, I will do this. I will save you in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you cry out to Me, I will make a new covenant. And your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. God's promises to you and I are covenant promises. Now, it should be enough just to say that it's a promise, right? Because God is God and He doesn't break His promise. But, but when you think about this background, it is a covenant. You probably have made many promises in your life. You've probably broken some of your promises. But when you make a covenant, it takes on a whole new meaning. You get into a marriage and you make a covenant. You're, you're promising, but you know that it's so much more than a promise. Like, yeah, 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 I promise I'll be at the game this week. I, I promise, dear, while you're away, I'll, I'll wash the kitchen floors. You made a covenant. You bonded yourself to someone. Your name became attached to their name. You became one in flesh and spirit in, in, um, in unity and in interest. God makes a covenant with us. Redemption is in Christ when God sends His Son to save us is the fulfillment of a covenant promise and a making of the, a new covenant. It's interesting, we read Exodus 24 where Moses, uh, uh, it's kind of like the solidifying of the covenant there. He sprinkles the blood. He goes up onto the mountain. Hebrews draws an analogy there between what Moses did and how Christ makes an even greater covenant. The security of God's promises to you are bound by covenant. Let me read from you Hebrews, which is really just quoting Jeremiah. Speaking of the new covenant, it says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ephesians chapter 1 doesn't use the word covenant, but it does use the word inheritance. Just like Israel was promised an inheritance, it says, quote, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of His will, 
of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the, to the praise of the, the, the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, believed in Him, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you remember that when God makes a promise to you, He is a promise-keeping God? He makes promises and He keeps promises. He enters into a covenant. If I know this about the character of God, how does it shape the way I live my life? Do you know that God makes promises Do you know that God keeps promises? They're irrevocable. And if you know this, and you understand the character of God, and I've been saying Exodus is all about the character of God as He reveals Himself to us. Do you trust Him? We're such a forgetful people. Israel was such a forgetful people. She gets out into the wilderness and she's like, man, I wish we were back in Egypt. And God gives them water. And then she's like, man, we're so hungry. Is God even going to feed us? And then God feeds them. And they grumble and they grumble and they grumble. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are so like that. God makes a promise to us. I will never leave you and forsake you. God enters into a covenant relationship with us. And yet, how often in our prayers do we doubt Him? How often do we wrestle and struggle with our faith? It's a comforting thing to know that God keeps His promises. I do want to say one thing. In our world today, doubt has become something uh, that's in vogue. Doubt is seen as kind of a, a noble quality. Like, true faith should have some doubt in it. Now look, we all struggle with doubt from time to time. We wouldn't be human if that didn't happen. But when you have your doubts, you you go back to the Word of God and you rest on the promises. You stand on the promises, if you will. And you say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You, you wrestle with your doubts and you, you turn to God and you seek to put them to death. And we are living in a world that tells us, well, your faith really isn't genuine if it doesn't have some kind of doubt. You should have doubts. You should encourage them. You should let them grow a little bit. You should explore them. Because then you'll know your faith is real. Oh, that's not a biblical portrait. It's not to say we don't struggle. We do struggle. It's not to say the faith isn't hard sometimes. It is. God doesn't give us all the answers. And oftentimes the things that we want to know are the hidden things of God that He doesn't tell us. And He's not obligated to tell us. Sometimes we don't have all the answers that we want. Why did this tragedy happen? Why did that happen? Why did this or that come about in my life? But doubt is not a seed that the Lord wants to grow in our life. Do you trust the promises of God? And look at the great lengths that God would go to 
to unite you to himself. The Lord Jesus Christ died for you. As Paul says in Romans 8, how will he then not give you all things? Christ died for you. It's like saying, what more can he give you? He's given you everything. How can you not be assured that the rest will come? Why? Because God keeps his promises. And God did that for Israel. And God does that for us. God will redeem his people. Exodus 6, 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you out of slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God alone saves. And when he saves, he's doing two things. He's taking his mighty hand and he's scooping up his people. They are safe. He's like a mother hen drawing them under his his wings is one of the pictures in, in Deuteronomy. And they are safe. And he's taking his other hand, if you will, and he's pushing a hard judgment on the Egyptians. Why? Because they oppressed the people of God. Because they rebelled against God. And in rebelling against God, they attacked his people. But I want to focus on this this morning. And I almost made this just the whole sermon. Verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. There's that language of no. You're going to know. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. There's three backgrounds to this. Number one, it's adoption language. When you adopt someone, and even in the ancient world, when you adopt someone, not only are legal rights bestowed to the children that you've adopted, but familial rights, family relationship bond is created. It's not just a legal thing. It's a legal and a relational. The second background, probably the more prominent one, is this oath is likened to a marriage covenant. God binds himself. I will take you as my people. You are my bride. And I will be your God. In the book of Hosea, for example, when God is telling Hosea to marry the unfaithful woman, the prostitute, he's basically paralleling what God had done with Israel. God married a people who were unfaithful and who continued to cheat on him throughout Israel's history. And Hosea 1.8 says this, so Hosea's wife has, has a child, and it says, when she has weaned no mercy, that was the name of the first son. How would you like that as your name, kids? No mercy. Uh, that would have been a fun dedication, right? And here we have no mercy that we're dedicating today. Um, glad nobody named their kid that. But this is prophetic, and this is giving symbolism and all of that. Um, then she conceived and bore another son. And the Lord said to him, call his name, not my people. Not, not exactly the most exciting name either. Uh, for you are not my people, talking about Israel, and I am not your God. That yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God. So there's going to be like a divorce You're not my people. I'm not your God. And there's going to be like a remarriage where I once said, you're not my people. I'm going to take you back in. 
And I'm going to love you, even though you've been the unfaithful spouse. Just like Hosea is told, go back to your wife who went out in the middle of their marriage and acted like a harlot again. Like went out and worked the corners, if you will. And Hosea was told to take her back in. Why? Because that's what God does. And here is this language. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's a major theme in Scripture. I'll just give you a few. You can find it in Exodus. Similar language, not exact, but he says, I'll dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord. You have similar language in Deuteronomy 29. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 23 and 24 rehearses what God has done. And then it says, you established your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. But the biggest place that it appears in the scriptures is in the new covenant. And, And just write some of these verses down. Uh, and, and go back to him and look at him on your own. But Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now, this is the new covenant. This is what we are a part of as we're grafted into the family of God. He says, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write them on it on their hearts. That's the Holy Spirit being given to us. And... I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 32, 38 and 39. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Ezekiel 11. I will give them one heart and a new spirit and I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh that they will walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 23, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backsliding in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land and I gave them to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. I shall be an everlasting covenant. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in the land and multiply them. And I will set them in this, their, my sanctuary and their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God And what? They shall be my people. This is what God does for us. This is what God does for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you get to the book of Revelation. And you hear this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, remember how the the new Jerusalem descends onto the new heavens and the new earth. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. And you can see that Ezekiel language. My dwelling place shall be with them. You can see that echoed in the Exodus language as well. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 
And similar, Revelation 21.7, to the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. We so take for granted that possessive pronoun. We're his people. He's our God. Do you look at the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's one God in three persons, and say, He is my God. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. He shed His blood. I put my faith and trust in Him. He has given me the Holy Spirit to seal me, to secure my repentance. He has given Himself to me. In the person of the Son to die for me. In the person of the Spirit to unite Himself to me. To bring me into the family. I am married to Christ, if you will. He is my God. And I am His child, His son, His daughter. As as the family of God, the church gathered here visible today, do we think of ourselves in these categories? We are His people. And He is our God. Not everyone can say that. Not everyone experiences that. Our access to God comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ, through believing in Him and receiving the forgiveness of sins. And if you would like to be a part of the family of God, where you can say, He's my God and I'm His child, All you have to do is cry out to the Lord Jesus and say, forgive me of my sins, cleanse me, and make me your child. What is it like to belong to God? It is amazing. It is awesome. And if you think about our culture and you think about all the problems it has, how many people are are crying out for a sense of belonging. They want a family. They want a community. They want a people who identify with them. Out of all the hurt and brokenness and sin, most people are longing to feel at home. Here we are. And God takes us and marries us and makes us His children and says, I will be your God. And you will be my people. It's like Augustine, the church father, said, My heart is restless until I find rest in you. Do you find your ultimate rest in God? Does your sense of self-worth, your sense of belonging, your sense of who you are come not from yourself, but from what God has done? You see, we at the same time can say we are sinners who deserve none of this and at the same time say we have the privilege of a status and a family relationship with God. You see, we can be humble. And the world says sometimes, well, if you dwell on your sin too much, you're not going to have self-esteem. No, we can look at our sins and honestly say that's wicked and that's vile. And then we can look at the greatness of God and say, 
How amazing is He that He would take me, that He would wash me, that He would cleanse me in the blood of His Son, and then He would say to me, I am your God. And you, you are my people. That is our God. And that's what makes Him wonderful. Did he have to do that? No. Was he obligated to? Did he have some sort of need for us? No. But he delighted in making his name known. I am the Lord. And this is what I do. Not because I have to, but so that you can see the full range of the glory of my character in saving and forgiving and in judging sin. I make you my people, and I'm your God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do want to come before you today and thank you for your goodness, for your kindness. We do thank you for this wonderful thing that you do, where you make us your children, you make us your people. You adopt us into your family. You give us things that we do not deserve. You elevate us to a status that is not rightly ours. And then, not only are we able to recognize and see that you are great and mighty and glorious and powerful, but we can say, you are our God. We can cry out to you and say, Abba, Father, that privileged relationship of intimacy Because you have done these things. You reached down and scooped us up out of our sin and washed us by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.